to see you guys. How are you today? You doing good? All right. Hey, welcome all those tuning online. Thanks for being with us also. It's good to have you guys. So we're kicking off a new series called uh, I Love Church, and we're going to talk about what the church is, who the church is. And as we, we really were gearing up to hopefully go back to the theater in July, uh, the theater hasn't opened up. So they gave, Regal's given us permission as long as they are allowed to enter back in and start movies again, then we'll be able to go back and do church also. And so until we have a, until they're open, we really can't get in there. So we're planning for July, but everything's in the air, just so you know. My hope is we get there July, but if not, maybe August, maybe uh, September, whatever. We'll eventually make it work. But we're doing this series through the month of June uh, because I want to talk about the church and what the church is, who the church is, and what we believe, why we even exist. And that really because we're part of something much bigger than just um, the Grove. And so um, one of the things you'll hear of our heart at the Grove is, is one of the things I'll say a lot is we're not about building the we're not just about building the Grove. That's not the purpose of our church is just to make the Grove and reach as many people the Grove to make the Grove the Grove the Grove. It's not that. It's about the kingdom. Now the Grove is the, the tool that God has put in our hands. It's the community that He's formed within Santa Fe. But we celebrate every church that's in Santa Fe that, that proclaims Jesus, and we we are we we love them. I I personally build relationships with the pastors in this city uh, because I know that we're not alone. We're in this together. We're trying to accomplish the same purposes of of, of reaching people in our city that are far from God. And so it's really about the, the capital C church. And so we're going to talk about both. What does a capital C church look like? And then as us as a community, what, is, what do we look like? And what are we supposed to be accomplishing and doing that God's put in our heart? And the different churches look differently because we're reaching different people. We have different mission, uh, essentially a different uh, aspect of the mission of God that God's called us to. And so we're going to be talking about this for this month is, is church. So when you hear the word church, some of you might think different thoughts, right? So the word church might think you might think of a building, right? Depending on how you grew up, depending on your background. When you hear the word church, you're thinking, well, it's a building. It's a, it's a location, right? Others might think, well, it's a weekend event, something that takes place on the weekend, right? It could be a Saturday. It could be a Sunday. Uh, just it's a weekend event. Some of you, uh, if you grew up in maybe a church that uh, um, wasn't very engaging, uh, it could be the longest hour of the week, right? Anybody have that experience at some point in their life? Like, this is the longest hour of my life. And then if you grew up in a church like I grew up in, it was like the longest three hours of your life because it wasn't just one hour. It was like hour after uh, service after service anyways so maybe in your mind when you hear the word church you're thinking uh to endure a, a, a service right like man I, how long is this guy gonna go anyways right hey just so you know if you're that person in this room uh we will be done uh, we, we go about an hour and five hour and ten minutes and then we let you go uh, eat lunch we dismiss early enough to let you go beat the, the crowds right so you can get lunch early so it's not be that long so maybe when you hear the word church maybe it's not the longest hour others of you you think well it's arguing with my parents on sunday mornings that's what church when i think of the word church it's about me not wanting to get up my parents saying you have to go to church but i don't want to go to church you're gonna make us late hurry and get up and it's like i'm just maybe kids you're thinking it's a, um parents you're thinking it's arguing with my kids on sunday morning or it's arguing with my kids on a Sunday morning, right, if you're, if, if you're a parent. So either your kids, you're arguing with your parent, or maybe you're uh, a parent arguing with your kid. Maybe that's what you think of well, with the pressure of trying to get to church on time. And, hey, just, you know, we, if you come, and we're just glad you're here. We know it takes a lot of work just to get here, especially if you have family, young, young kids. Man, we applaud you. We're so grateful that you would uh, take time to come and join us on Sunday mornings. And uh, we pray that it will be one of the best hours of your week, right, not the one you have to endure but you can to enjoy. So when you think of the church, there's all these different kind of things that are attached to it, depending on your background, depending on what you have, have learned or what you've experienced. And today we're going to talk about a little about what the church is supposed to be and what, it, what it's looked like historically and uh, what that means to us as present day um, in, in Santa Fe, New Mexico, right? So here's, let me just give you a definition of what the church is supposed to be, all right? It's not a building. It's not just a weekend event. The church is supposed to be a community of people who follow the teachings of a man who was sent by God to explain God and to clear the path to God. So really, it's a community of people who are trying to experience God here now, right? Not just the ideas of what happened back then, but what does God want to do even, even today in our lives? So it's supposed to be a community of people who follow the teaching of, of Jesus, who was sent by God to explain God and to clear a path to God. That's, that's, that's really what a church should be. And when I think of it, some people think, well, I really don't want to go to church. I don't think church is practical. I don't think, it's, I don't think it really doesn't make a difference in my life. Um, well, when they talk about church and the things they don't like about the church, what's historically what's taken place within the church in the past, things the church has, things that happened in the name of the church or the name of Jesus that just were horrific, right? When, whenever people talk about church and why they don't believe or want to attend or want to come, typically the things that they mention are things that we should also resist as much as them. Because those are things that don't, they're not part of really what the church was supposed to be in the first place. It's all about something very different. Because when you really think about what Jesus is trying to accomplish, he was asking us to do a few things. The application of Jesus and, and what he was asking us to live out are very simple. He said, love God, 
love people, right? Two things, just love God, love people. So love God, love one another, and then love people that you don't even like, people that don't like you. Love your enemies also. This is application. So when you talk to people about Jesus, being, being a, a Christian or a Jesus follower, most people don't resist Jesus because they know that he's, he's wanting us to experience something beyond ourselves, right? Loving God is, is this idea that, that life is so much bigger than what we're going through. That's not a bad thing. That keeps us focused on the larger picture, not just on a, a shallow individual picture, right? A selfish picture. It's always about that. And then loving one another, who doesn't want that? When people love one another, it doesn't matter if they voted different, they think different, if they have different opinions about things. Loving one another makes us all better. It makes our world a better place. And then loving our enemies, like who, who – that's unheard of, right? Even Jesus said, like, it doesn't profit you to love people who love you. Love the people who don't love you. Pray for those that are trying to hurt you. Jesus would say he's trying to break down this idea of what life is really about. And when you think about the practical application of what God is asking and Jesus asking us to do, it's pretty simple. And most people don't, re- don't resist this. But they resist all this other stuff that's attached to church that really wasn't supposed to be part of church in the first place a lot of times. And honestly, it's a lot of stuff we should also resist, right? And so, um, so when you think of a church that you have to endure, I actually personally say you should, you should resist churches that you have to endure. Because the message of Jesus should be life-giving that you want to be there. You want to be engaged. You want to learn more. If you haven't endured something, it makes you – and then the way they, they, they package it is the more you endure, like the more holy you are, the, the better it is. That's not always true, right? Enduring is sometimes just enduring. Sometimes it's good to endure things, but a lot of times it, it should be life-giving. So, in fact, there's, there's times where um, in our growth track, all of conversations with different people that move to the city or from they may come from a different church before. And we talk about, you know, what, what church is to them, what they expect. And if it's something completely different than what we're doing, I actually encourage them to go to a different church. Like, you should find the church that you're passionate about because you'll be more faithful in your, in your, in your attending. You'll be more faithful about getting involved because you'll love what they're doing. And that's more important than just enduring something. It's actually being a part of something. So church, when we think of the word church, right, it, it usually doesn't have anything to do with this. It usually has to do with other stuff. What kind of music? Is there lights, no lights? Is there, you know, what, 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 what instruments, no instruments, loud music, soft music, old music, new music? It becomes all this stuff that really ha- doesn't have a lot to do with what Jesus actually wants to do in the first place. Now, all those things are not bad. It's just preference. It's style, things like that. But that wasn't even a part of really – some of that stuff wasn't even a part of the early church. And so we're, we're, trying, we're, we're going to do a series to talk about why it's important to understand some of the church history, but then also understand what we're trying to accomplish as a church. So you know, if, if this is where God's calling you, that you can be a part of what God is asking us to do, and we all go in together. It's kind of like if we're on a really big boat, right, and we begin to row at the same time in the same direction, we're going to make a lot of progress. But if we're in a big boat and we're all rowing at different times in different directions, trying to go different ways, there's going to be a lot of, like, frustration, I don't want, we don't want to be a church of frustration. We want to be a church that says, hey, this is what God's calling us to do. Let's, let's do this. Let's go accomplish this. Let's put our energy into this, these few things so that we can make an impact in our, in our city and our world, right? So that's what, what the church is, uh, what we're trying to accomplish in this series. Um, let's read the scripture where, where the, we first see the word church introduced into, uh, the, uh, into, the, into the Bible, into the New Testament, all right? So in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, he's recording, he records an interaction with, with Jesus and the disciples. And it says that when the, Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? When he says the Son of Man, he's talking about himself. So who, who do the people say Jesus is? Who, who, do, who, people, who are people, what are they saying about me? Because Jesus knows that people are beginning to talk. He's beginning to teach. He's beginning to, to perform some different miracles, do some amazing things. So they're beginning to talk. But they come to this region, and Caesarea Philippi would have been like a, um, an influential part, right? There would have been a lot of wealth. There would have been a lot of... Uh, it would have been the power of the day. It would have been, it would have been a, a stronghold, the strength of, of that area. And so when it comes to it, it it's a very it, – there's no accents in the Bible. It's awesome. When the, writer, when the writers are writing, there's, Jesus is very intentional in what he's trying to teach them. He's trying to teach them something about culture, but really something bigger than culture and something bigger than what, what even they're, they're experiencing in the moment. So he comes and he says, well, who people say I am? So they replied, the disciples, they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, they say Jeremiah or maybe one of the prophets. They're unsure about you, Jesus, because they're really not sure what, what it is you're trying to accomplish, who you are, right? And so they're just kind of saying these different things, right? So, um, um, but, but Peter, he doesn't even pause. He just says this. But Peter answers, and, he said, and Jesus says, what about you guys? Who do you say that I am? What do you, disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter, he says, steps up and says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So you are God's son, Jesus, and you're the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the one that the scriptures and the prophets have been talking about. They're going to come one day and rescue and change things. Because you are 
the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So in Matthew 16, 16, very important statement where Jesus, Peter is explaining who he believes Jesus is. And Jesus replies, says, Blessed are you, son of Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So Simon, you're blessed. And this didn't come to you just because of like people telling you this is something God has revealed to you. And then he makes this statement. He says, and I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my, we get the first time the use of the word church, church, and the gates of hell, gates of Hades, the gates of death will not overcome it. So nothing is going to be able to stop my church. So he says, Peter, you're on this rock, I will build my church. I will build. He's going to build it. It's going to be his church. And the gates of hell will not be able to stop it. So Jesus does this play on words, right? So Simon, Peter's name is Simon. Peter is his nickname. That's kind of what the name God gave him, Jesus gave him, changed it from Simon to Peter. Simon is like a reed. So when the wind blows, a reed kind of goes with the wind. It just kind of moves with whatever's going on. It's, going to, it's unstable. It just kind of goes with the flow. But Peter is something solid. It's a rock. And so he says, Peter, you're not going to just be somebody that just kind of goes with the flow, just goes with culture. You're going to be somebody that's solid, that has some substance to you, that doesn't just move, right? That you're going to be, you're going to be able to, to, to have some, some resolve and be able to stick it out when it gets hard. You're going to be something different. But he uses this play on words in the Greek. So he uses two words, Petros and Petra. Petra is this rock. Petros is this rock. So Peter, as a rock, is kind of, it's, it's a big rock. It's, it's something you can move, right? But it's, but it's still solid. It's, it's, it's secure. But Petra is a solid rock. It would be something they would use as a foundation. It's something that you can't move. It would be almost, in that day, it would be impossible to move some of those, that, that, that size of, of a rock. It's a, it's a foundation. It's a bedrock. It's something that's massive. And so he says, so on this rock, Peter, um, I tell you the truth, Peter, rock, I'm going to build my church on this rock. And essentially, he's saying the, the statement that Peter made, that Jesus is the son of the living God, that is the statement. That is the rock he's building on, that Jesus is the son of God. We know that Peter gets this because later on in his letter in First Peter, he actually tells the church he's writing to. He says, um, you guys, you believers, you people that are following Jesus, you are living stones. Like you are actually a living stone. So the same way that Jesus says you're going to be a rock built upon another rock uh, on, on the foundation, he tells other believers you're also living stones. And we're being fashioned and we're being put together to build something that's great, something that's big, something that's alive. So essentially he's kind of giving this picture of a building that's being built by people, that you're a piece of the church and I'm a piece of the church. And we're, we're rocks fit together to build something bigger. And we know Peter got that because he writes about that. And then he goes on in that, in that same letter and says, but Jesus is the foundation. He's the cornerstone. He's the one that we are built upon, built off of, built from. He says we're, we're, we're from that. So the problem, though, is when we hear the word church, and, there, and, and when the church became, um, uh, I guess, like civilized or became more of an uh, institution organization uh, where it was, it was geared from the, from the top, they took this and they, they took the wrong statement. So they, they thought when he said you are – that you are Peter on this rock, I will build my church. They thought he was the rock that Jesus was going to build the church on. And they actually made him the first pope. They said, Peter's the first pope. So we're going to listen to this authority figure who is the rock. But they didn't catch the whole, they didn't, they didn't really catch what Jesus was saying. Because it's not this rock he's building on. That rock is being built upon a different rock, who is Jesus, the foundation, the cornerstone. And that's a, that's a, um, that's a big mix-up if you missed those two, because you're thinking, well, he's building upon somebody, yes, but it's not a person, Peter. It is Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, is the statement that he makes. He tells you, on this, on, this, on this rock I will build my church. So the first time we see the word church, we get this word. It's, it's actually, this is like one of the words. So in Bible translation, this is where they got it wrong, completely wrong. So when they translate the words, usually it's literal. They, they use a word that, that, we, that is attached to it. Church is not. This is a substitution because it's a, it's a foreign word. It's not from the original text. Um, the word that Jesus used, it wasn't church. It was a, actually ecclesia. Ecclesia is not a religious term. When he said ecclesia, people would have known that. Oh, an ecclesia, that's a gathering of people. It's an assembly. It's where people get together for maybe it would be a citizens who gather for a, civic, a civic purpose or purposes. Maybe when soldiers get together in the military for a specific, a specific, a specific purpose, that would have been the gathering, right? It's a gathering or an assembly where people get together. Uh, and so he, when he uses this term, on, on my church, he's saying, you're going to be my ecclesia, and I'm going to build my ecclesia. So he's, it's not a building. It's a gathering or an assembly of people for a purpose. 
Um, so when, you, when they gather a specific purpose, that's who I'm going to begin to build, some people. Not, not a building, but a, a group of people. Um, the Greek translation of the Old Testament is called the, the Septuagint. And um, it, was, it was written from, they translated the Old Testament into, into Greek. And so when, when, when they, they read this word, ekklesia, they even used that word in that, in that translation to refer to the, to the ancient Israelites. That they were the ecclesia, of God. they were God's people, they were chosen, that God was going to use a community, a congregation, a gathering of people. So when they heard this word, both the secular and, and even the Jewish listeners would have said, oh, he's, he's talking about a, a group of people. Not a building, but a group of people. And so they were always aware, aware that this referred to a, a common identity or purpose of people gathering together. So if the Greek word means gathering, why don't we have that word in our Bibles? Why don't they just say gathering? What, what, what happened in church history that they took this idea of church and they made it into something different? They made it into a building, a location. Where did that, where did that happen? Right, so if you're following along, it's an important question to ask is, well, why didn't they just say gathering? Right? Where did the word church come from? So to understand that the, the transition from what, what Jesus intended through the history of where we've kind of gone, where people think of church as a location or a building, we have to understand how it kind of uh, the church kind of tr- – evolved and, and changed throughout history and there's a period of our church of, of history of church history that is really the only word you can use is horrific it's really bad uh, that people would would use the name of jesus and the church to do horrible things that we would in current day call it terrorism they'd go into communities and in the name of jesus they would take over land and they would kill people and they would do things in the name of jesus in the name of purification which had nothing to do with what jesus originally started but a group of people that were trying to do something different so let's talk about the church history a little bit all right this is important for you to know because if you're a Jesus follower, you should really know like what people actually sacrificed and, and did and gave up to ha- so we can have what we do have, which is important, but then also things that we shouldn't ever repeat again because there's a tendency that if you're not careful, you will repeat and do the things that others did and they didn't learn from it. So let's learn from it, right? So 250 years after Jesus, around the year 313 AD, um, up to this point, they begin to persecute Christians. So in 313 AD, uh, Constantine, who would be the, 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 the new emperor, he legalized Christianity. Well, he actually legalized uh, rel- freedom of religion. And so Christianity used to be outlawed because Christians insisted that it was Jesus, not the emperor, not Caesar, who was king. And the Caesars hated that. What do you mean I'm not the king? I'm the king. I'm the most powerful person in the world. What do you, what do you mean this guy Jesus is the king? I don't even know who Jesus is. That's the guy that died on the cross. He's not even alive anymore. And they hated Christians because they went against the, some of the authorities and the rulers of their day because they proclaimed and said they were divine and they didn't believe they were divine. They were just humans. And they believed Jesus was really the son of God. So there was persecution for about 300 years where they killed a lot of people who claimed to be Christians, who, who, a lot of Christians in that time frame. So up to that point, there's a lot of Christians who hid. They, they, when they would gather, it wouldn't be a public one. It would be a hidden one in rooms and in hiding areas at different times of the day, different times of the night. They could still get together and worship and have, their, have a church service. But they did it in secrecy because they knew that if they were found out, they could be killed and persecuted and all that. And so up until this point, it wasn't cool to be a Christian. If you're a Christian, you really believe this stuff, and you're willing to, to, to put up a lot and, and give your life for it. And then in 313 AD, Constantine not only legalized it, he went on to declare himself as a Christian, which would have been a shock. Like, oh, what? The emperor is now a, a Jesus follower? Like, this is this is crazy. This never has happened before. 300 years after Jesus died, now one of the most powerful people is going to say they're a Christian, which sounds pretty awesome, but it actually hurt the church a lot because now going from a relatively informal gathering, it turned into a formal and hierarchical gathering and location and place. So as Caesar declares himself as a Christian, now all the powerful people say, well, I want to be, I want to be, I want to fit in. I want to be popular. I want to be a part of what Caesar's doing. So I'm a Christian too. And they begin to bring some of their beliefs, some of their things that they did in their church services, like their pagan worship, and they begin to bring it in, and they begin to do some of the similar things, and it became pomp and circumstance. It became all of this formal, you know, uh, service, and this is where we get the liturgy and how the how the, the service of the, the goes goes along. And they begin to wear robes, and they begin to have choirs, and they begin to make this big show out of it. And up until this point, it was informal. So a church service would be like you go to some friends' houses and you eat some dinner together. You open the scriptures, you sing together, you pray together, you talk about theology, you talk about God, you live life together. In fact, um, communion, we, what we do is communion. One of the ideas of communion is the common meal. 
They would call them love feasts, essentially a potluck. You would bring food, they'd bring food. We would get together, we'd enjoy a really good meal together. And then we'd have some worship and some songs and some, some prayer and a time to be the church. It was very informal. Sounds like a small group, right? That's what the early church was. They would get together. Now, they had places they'd gather, and they would have teaching, and somebody would teach from the front. But for the most part, it was a movement of people who says, together we can accomplish a lot more than we can by ourselves. Together we can encourage, we can learn, we can help our neighbors know God's love. And it was a movement of people. And then once it, was, it was, became the state religion, essentially Constantine made it the state religion, then it became all of this formal, what we have now experienced more as church. If you grew up in one of those churches, you now understand. It was very, it was, you, you're more of a, you're, you're expected to be a spectator now, not a participant. You're, you're there just to watch. You're not there to, to actually be involved and to use your life for something. And so Jesus is saying, when he says, I'm building my church, it was not that. He was not talking about that. He was talking about a group of people, a movement of people who are going to work together to accomplish some great things together. So within, it didn't even take a decade. Within a decade, within 10 years, the church went from being a movement, basically, to just sitting and watching. You, you go to this building. They, they began to call the churches basilicas in the Latin, which is a location. It's a building. And that wasn't just a, a, a Christian term. That was just a religious term for any kind of temple or, or place to, to worship. And it became a basilica. And then as it, as, as it began to move, the, the word uh, it went, went in the Germanic culture, in, in German, they, they began to use this word um, kirka, which means the house of the Lord, which is also a location, a building. So now the church was now in where we get the word uh, kirka is the word where we get where we get our English word church from. So kirka is a location, but an ecclesia uh, uh, is a purposeful gathering of people. Here's the difference: you can lock the doors of a kirka, a church, but you can't lock the doors of an ecclesia of Jesus. It's impossible because there's not a door; it's a people. You're the living stones. We're the living stones. Us together make the church. Which means that when you're in a small group in your house, you're in a small group at the Starbucks, you're in a small group. And you're meeting for the purpose of, of learning and growing. And that Jesus says, I'm in the midst there. I'm in the middle of that. You're the church there. So the church is not this. We, the people, are the church. Big difference. So when people resist, resist church, they're really resisting something that wasn't even supposed to be the church in the first place. Even that word, they, they, they resist church. They don't resist ecclesia. Because ecclesia is a group of people working together to accomplish something that's so much bigger than themselves. It's a movement of people. Do you see the difference? Church, somewhere you go, ecclesia, which Jesus said, I'm going to build my ecclesia, and even hell and death can't stop it. That's different than a location. It's not a building. And here's the thing that they knew is the religious people that day and the leaders, and the, it became very formal, right, hierarchical. So you get these, these levels of, of different leaders who are saying, I'm more important because I have more of this. I have a bigger hat than you have, right? It became all these different things that they would do. And they knew that whoever controlled the building controlled the church. And worse, whoever controlled the scriptures controlled the people. So we call this the, you know, the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, where it was pretty, pretty bad. In fact, they, they would chain the Bibles, the Bibles they had, to the pulpit. It was all about control. In one word, control. It's the, it's the worst part of church history because torture and murder was justified as purification. Uh, purification and they would year, use the fear of excommunication to get people to do things they didn't want to do or weren't even scripture or biblical because they wanted to control. They wanted power. So you fast forward to 1453. Um, the, Roman, the, the capital of Roman Empire was Constantinople. Um, and this was the political and the religious power of the day. Well, um, the Ottoman Empire, they eventually conquered Constantinople and made, made it possible for, for the church to begin to change. And God actually used this opportunity for, for the, the real the, the ecclesia to begin to become what he wanted in the first place. So many of the scholars from the Roman Empire, they fled west. Um, and they carried with them Hebrew and Greek, Greek manuscripts. They took some of the manuscripts from the original uh, writings, right, letters uh, of the Bible. And eventually they began the hands of what we call the reformers, like John Huss. Uh, these guys were under the conviction that the Bible, not the Pope, would be the, first, would, 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 would be the Christian's final authority. So not a person, but the Bible would be the one that we listen to. It'd be, it, it's unmovable. It doesn't change, right? It, but a person's word could. And he actually said the Pope or any church official – who did not obey the Bible should not be obeyed. So any, any official that would get up and not obey the Bible shouldn't actually even be obeyed. So church officials, the only ones that had access to Bibles, it, it, they had a version that was called the Vulgate. It was in Latin, and they locked it up either in libraries or it was chained to the pulpit, like I said. So it was about control. Well, you fast forward a little more, 1522, there's a man named William Tyndale who, who um, 
uh, begins to, with, with the Reformers, begins to de- they decide to translate the Bible into the common language. So from the Greek and the Hebrew manuscripts, they say, why don't we do this, get, get this, the, the Bible, the Word of God, into the hands of anybody? That's just, it doesn't have to be the Vulgate. It could be, and so he wanted to translate, he's from England, he wanted to translate into English. And so he began this process of saying, I want to translate this into English. English. Well, there's a fellow pastor of his who actually told him, uh, no, you shouldn't do that. Uh, it would be better for people not to have the Bible and to only have the law of the Pope. And he says, and this is his response to this other pastor. He says, if God spares my life, before many years pass, I'll make it possible for a boy behind the plow to know more scripture than you do. So he says, you think you're all powerful, but if God allows my life to go the way I want it to go, I'm going to make it possible for just a young person to be able to know more than you as a priest, as a pastor. And this, this made, the, made the people really upset and mad. Nobody would embrace this idea of translating the Bible into English. So he had to flee from England and went down to Germany, and he began to write, translate the Bible from the, from the original manuscripts into English. A few years later, 1526, he began to smuggle Bibles into England. <laughs> Imagine this. The religious people of the day are upset at this pastor who is making the Bible accessible to anybody. The words of Jesus, the people, the person they're supposed to be following, accessible to those who don't know him or who do know him want to know more. They made him an outlaw in England. They, 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 then they began to plot his arrest and try to, to, to get him to, to be tried for heresy. Well, it took 10 years. Eventually, he was betrayed by acquaintance. Um, he stood before the tribunal of the, of the Holy Roman Empire, and they condemned him as a heretic. He was bound to a beam, strangled with a rope, and they burned his body, and they scattered his remains. And get this. Why? Because he wanted to give the Bible to average normal people, that they can just have it. So when I opened my Bible, one of the reasons we have this is because people like Tyndale, who said, this should be accessible to anybody, and they should be able to read in their own language. And we've gone on to translate the language in the, in, in the common uh, language throughout, throughout history. So when you look, read the King James Version, you know, the, 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 the thous and these, and it's not us, but it was their language. It was, it was the, the day, the people, the language of the day. Now we have the NIV. We even have the message, a paraphrase that gives us a little more insight into some of the, the nuances there. But it's, but it's in English. You can open the Bible and you can read it in your own language and easy understanding because people like Tyndale, they gave their life for it. But why would, they, why would these religious people, why would they be so mad at this guy? One word, control and power. And anytime anybody, this goes for politics, this goes for religion, this goes for any, any kind of authority, influence. When you want control and you want power, you will do really bad things to keep that control and power. You'll hurt people. You'll cause them to do things. You'll tell lies. You'll do a lot of stuff to keep power and control. It's the opposite of the kingdom of God and what, he, what God wants. It's not about getting more power. It's about trusting God with what he gives us all the time. And, and, and he even did the opposite. He says, if you don't know my kingdom, you should serve one another. Don't use your life to, to dominate and, and get, get from others. Use your life to serve and to care and help others to know God's love. And they burned with rage because this man. So, because they, they understood this. Once the people began to, of his day, the 16th century, began to read the Bible, they would realize, like, um, what we're doing in church doesn't look like anything they did in, this, in, this, in the early church. What in the world happened here? And they knew they would lose control. Because it was nothing like what the Bible described the church to be. So one of the things that you'd find you would be find missing in his translation, William Tyndale, is he didn't he didn't use the word church. He didn't use the German word kirka. He actually used the correct one. He he used the word congregation. So when Jesus says, On this rock I'm gonna build my congregation, I'm gonna build my group of people, even that's not the best the best use, but you get the point. It's not a building, it's not a location, it's a group of people, a movement. One of the things they were really mad that he left out was the word priest. He didn't substitute elder instead of priest because he wanted people to know if you're a leader in the church, God can use you as a leader, as an elder, as somebody who's, who's, who can be used, not just this position of a, of a person, of a man that's, that wears a robe and stands in front of people. And he took that out. And instead of do penance, he put the word repentance. He said it's about us turning our life to God, not trying to earn things from him by doing these and jumping through hoops and doing all these things. It's about us stopping the life that we're, supposed to, that, that we're not supposed to live and following God's ways. And they hated this, and so they had him killed because they wanted power and control. These are people who are supposed to represent Jesus, killing other people who are supposed to represent Jesus. The early church, 
the ones that gave their lives for what they believed, they would have looked at this and said, what in the world? Where did it go wrong? How did this happen? And if we're not careful, this can become any one of us at any time where we become religious and we think knowing more is more important than living more. So let's talk about the disciples. All right, let's, let's, how, did the, how did the first disciples die? So the disciples, they believed so much in Jesus that they were willing to give their lives. So Matthew, who was a tax collector, he died. He suffered martyrdom in Ethiopia. He was pinned to the ground and killed with a sword. Mark, uh, one of the first disciples, he wrote the, the Gospel of Mark. He died in Alexandria, Egypt, after being dragged by horse throughout the streets until he was dead. As assigned to all those who said, hey, if you're going to pre- preach the name of Jesus, you will die a death like this. To try to stop the movement of Jesus from growing. Luke, the physician who wrote the Gospel of Luke, he was hanged in Greece as a result of his tremendous preaching to the lost. Luke caught the gospel. He caught Jesus' parables, and he said, I'm going to do everything I can in my, in my power to give and help others to know God. And he would travel with Paul, and he'd write his stories, and he would, he'd write some of the letters, and he would give his life to, to preach the gospel. John, um, the, the beloved, right, the, the one that says that Jesus loved, um, he, he faced martyrdom by being boiled in a huge basin of boiling oil during a persecution in Rome. But get this, the oil they put him in didn't hurt him. Like a miracle, God performed a miracle for John. They didn't hurt him. They got upset and said, well, if we can't hurt him this way, we're going to hurt him by making him leave. And they sent him exiled to an island called Patmos where he wrote Revelation and wrote his letters and wrote his gospel. Eventually, he would die of old age there. The only disciple to die of old age. The rest all died at the hands of somebody. Peter. Peter was crucified upside down, an, X cross, an X-shaped cross. According to church tradition, it was because he told his tormentors that he felt unworthy to die in the same way that Jesus Christ had died. I can't die like this. You have to hang me upside down. So I'm not worthy to die like Jesus, but I'm still willing to give my life for what I believe. James, this is the early, early, one of the early leaders in the, in, the, in the church in Jerusalem. This is Jesus' half-brother. Probably one of the strongest arguments that we have for the, 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 um, the truth of what Jesus spoke is if you were Jesus' Jesus's brother, what would it take for you to believe that he really was the son of God? The magic tricks are kind of cool, James would say. Like, he turned water into wine. That was cool. It was a cool little party favor, right? Him do some other cool miracles. Like, we've seen God, God do miracles to people in the years. But, but him as the son of God, yeah, he's my brother. You know, he stunk like a sweaty sweat like I did too. Like, man, I, I know this guy. You know, it's, he's just my half-brother. James didn't believe. His family thought Jesus was crazy. Until he died on the cross, and three days later, he came back to life. And then James is going to hear... Jesus is alive again. He's, he's back. What? <laughs> like, I saw him be brutally killed on the cross. My mother, she watched him. They put him in the, gra- in, in the ground, in the grave, in, the, in a tomb, and this can't be possible. And then he experiences his, his half-brother Jesus. And not only that, then he begins to be one of the leaders saying, guys, this is the Son of God. He came, and with power and demonstration, not just the miracles, but even over, over the grave. And so it says James who's one of the leaders in the early church. He was thrown 100 feet down from the pinnacle, the southeast pinnacle of the temple, because he refused to deny his faith in Jesus Christ. The religious people killed him because he would not, he would not go back and say that his, his brother was not the Lord. Interesting fact is the same place that he was pushed off of, uh, he survived the fall with a lot of injuries, and so then they got a club and they beat him to death with a club after that. The same point they pushed him off was the same pinnacle that Satan took Jesus up to for one of the temptations and said, if you'll just bow down, you can have all this. Same pinnacle. James died saying, my brother really is the son of God. James, the son of Zebedee, another James. My, one of my favorite stories of the disciples who was martyred. Um, he was a fisherman by trade, so he was the older brother of John. Um, he began to follow Jesus, him and his brother, right, as soon as John the Baptist said, this is the, this is the Messiah, the son of God. He was, he was a strong leader in the church. He was, he was eventually beheaded in Jerusalem. But get this, there was a Roman officer who was supposed to guard him, and he watched over him. And so when he guarded and watched James, he was amazed, amazed at what James said during his, his, as he defended his faith in trial. And this officer who watched his life and watched this peace that he had, he walked beside James to the place of execution. Overcome by conviction, he declared his new faith to, to the judge, and he knelt, knelt beside James to accept the beheading as a Christian. So that day, James, in his death, had a convert of a Roman officer saying, there's something with this guy. There's something different about him. Why would he be willing to give his life for a lie? 
Why would he be willing to give his life for this person that others are saying was just a man? He saw something. He knew something that was different. And the officer with conviction said, Judge, I go also. I love it. Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, was another missionary. He was a missionary to Asia. So the disciples kind of scattered and went to different parts of the world. Pretty awesome. Uh, he, he witnessed for, for Jesus in, in what we would say present-day Turkey. So Bartholomew, he was martyred for his preaching in, Ar- in Ar- uh, Armenia, where he was flayed to death by a whip. So essentially, he bled out and was killed just by being hit with a whip so much times. Uh, Andrew, brother Peter, he was crucified in X-Cross in Petrus, Greece, after being whipped several severely by seven soldiers that eventually then tied his, his body to a cross to prolong his agony. Agony. Uh, the, the, the followers reported that when he was late, when he was led towards the cross, Andrew saluted it in the, these words: "I have long desired and expected this happy hour, the cross, this happy hour." He's going to his death on a cross. He says, "I've been expecting this happy hour. The cross has been consecrated by the body of Christ hanging on it." And he continued to preach to his tormentors for two days until he finally died. Thomas, he was stabbed with a spear during one of his missionary trips to establish the church and. In, in India. Jude, also known as Thaddeus, uh, has been the half-brother of Jesus also, another brother of Jesus who believed Jesus was the Son of God, was killed with arrows when he refused to deny his faith in Christ. Matthias, this is the disciple who replaced Judas, uh, he, was, um, he was stoned to death and then beheaded. And Paul, one of the writers who wrote most of the, the New Testament, uh, he was tortured. I mean, he was put in prison a lot. He was beaten multiple times that we read throughout the scripture. Eventually, he was tortured and beheaded by the, the evil emperor Nero, in Rome around A.D. 67. God used his life. And what's interesting about Paul is, Paul, before he was um, a martyr, he was the person that was doing the, the, that to others. He hated Christians so much that he had them arrested. He was there to witness the first church martyr, Stephen, that got stoned to death. Paul saw that and witnessed it. Probably did something in him. Eventually God would use Paul not to stop, try to stop the church, but to actually spread the church everywhere. And he did that with all that he had. So you can say it like this. Paul and James and Peter and John and all these other disciples, the men and women who made up the nucleus of the church, they weren't simply believers in an abstract philosophy or even a, a faithful followers of a great teacher. They were, that, that is true, but they were more than that. They were the eyewitnesses of an event. They saw something, they witnessed something, that changed them, that changed history because they saw something. We call it the resurrection. It's always celebrate Easter so great because Easter is proof that Jesus is not just a great teacher. He really is the son of God who came to take away the sins of the world, who came to live in a different way to show us a better way. And these disciples, they've spread the idea of church. and They spread the idea of Jesus, not because he was a great teacher. And even because there were some great philosophies and ideas that, that he helps us be a better person. It's because they saw him die and come back to life. And they said, wow, I believe. I am all in. So it was Jesus' resurrection, not his teachings, that caused them to go all in. Which is, which is very, very different. When you experience God, there's something changes in your life. Let me read another. Um, I remember in high school I got this book. It's called uh, Jesus Freaks. And it's uh, just a book of a lot of different uh, people that throughout history have uh, died for their faith, believing in Christ. Another book is called Fox, Fox's Book of the Martyrs. Uh, by John Fox, just uh, through, through the centuries to present day, uh, people that have given their life for Christ. If you look at it, there's just story after story, story, people doing this. Uh, so the, some of those ones I read, you know, you can find those in, in these books, talk about the disciples. But I want to read, read another one. This one is a, a woman named Runkin. Uh, this is from uh, Roanese Flanders, about the 1500s. Uh, Philip II, 16th century Philip II, uh, he sent the Duke of Alba, who was like the commander of his army, um, to go to Flounder, Flanders and to stamp out the Protestants because they would get this. The reason that they wanted to stamp them out is because they were reading the Bible in their own language. We have to kill these people because they're reading Jesus' words in their own language. Let's go kill them. So he sent them in, and, and the Duke of Alba is, is, um, has, has been said that he killed more Protestants um, than, than almost and all these other things that, that took place in that time. It's just horrible. Anyway, so he sends them to go to kill people in uh, what's current day like Belgium, that area. So the inquisitors, they found a Bible while inspecting the house of the mayor, a burgay. One by one, they pulled the family's family forward, members forward, and they questioned. But everyone claimed they knew nothing about the, how the Bible got to their home. Finally, the officials asked a young maid servant, Runkin, who boldly declared, oh, I'm reading that one. 
the mayor, knowing the penalty for studying the Bible, tried to defend her, saying, oh, no, no, she only owns it. She never doesn't ever read from it. But Runkin chose not to be defended by a lie. She said, this book is mine. I am reading from it, and it is more precious to me than anything. She was sentenced to die by suffocation. A place would be hollowed in the city wall. She would be tied in it, and the opening would be bricked over. One day, her execution, on the day of her execution, she stood by the wall, and an official tried to get her to change her mind, saying, so young and beautiful, and yet to die. Runker replied, she replied, my Savior died for me. I will also die for him. As the bricks were laid higher and higher, she was warned again, you will suffocate and die in here. She said, I will be with Jesus, she answered. Finally, the wall was finished, except for the one brick that would cover her face. For the last time, the official tried to persuade her, repent, just say the word, and you will go free. But Runkin refused, instead, saying instead, O oh Lord, forgive my murderers. The brick was put, was put in place, and then many years later, her bones were removed from the wall and buried in the cemetery of Bergay. Throughout history, people gave their life because they believed not just in a man named Jesus, but they believed he had the power to conquer death and hell. And the things that other people try to use to keep us afraid of things, he says, you don't be afraid of those things. I conquered it. So we have this amazing book. And it's not just a book. It's, it's, it's a book of books. It's got letters and stories, and God preserved it through history for us. And over and over, cultures try to stomp this, stamp it out and try to take it away and try to get rid of it. And they've never been successful. And you read the letters, and you think of the stories and the, the many that have died and all the disciples, the ones that were closest to him. What would cause you to give your life, give your life in, in horrible ways and allow your family to die? And many of their families died the same ways, boiled to death and burned to death and beheaded and stoned, all these different ways. What would cause them to be willing to do that? Because they experienced the power of God who says you don't have to fear death or the grave. Because this world is not the end of the story. There's something so much more that's going on. Unfortunately, throughout history, it got taken away from, hey, there's power that on a daily basis God interacts with you to, hey, just come once a week, sit and listen. Don't ask questions. Just do what we say. Everything will be good. If you don't do what you say, we're going to punish you and send you to hell. And people were afraid of that. So here's the thing. As, as Jesus followers, we must be known for the way we live, not for how much we know, not for what we know, but for the way we live. To the people of Jesus, they were actually, before they're called, before we were called Christians, we were called people of the way. Like they followed Jesus in such a way and they lived such a way that it was recognizable. They looked different than their culture. We must be known for living in a specific way, not just for what we know. See, religion is about knowing. Religion is about information. Being a Jesus follower is really about transformation and saying, I'm going to live this out. It's, it's more about who we know than just what we know. Because knowledge alone makes us haughty. And in Proverbs, there's, there's a few things it says that God hates, and haughtiness is one of those things that he hates. Somebody who's proud, somebody who thinks they're better than others. So knowledge alone, it makes Christians haughty. And you've met these people. They know a lot, but they are the meanest people you'll ever know. Application, it makes us holy. And this word just means set apart. It, it makes us different when we actually live it. What does God want us to live? Love God, love others, love our enemies. What, how can we... If we live this out, it shows that we're different. We just know a lot and read a lot and show up to, to the places that, that we're told to go. You might learn a lot, but you have a potential of just becoming a mean person. It's what happened in church history. It's about control. It's about power. And God is saying, if you're going to follow me, you have to keep moving. So following Jesus, it always requires moving. If you're, if you're not moving and you're staying in the same place, you're really not following Jesus. So the question is, are you moving or are you just spectating? Are you involved in this journey? Are you, are you allowing God to, on a, on a regular basis, allow you to do things that sometimes are even uncomfortable? Praying for people, loving on people, caring for people. If you want to know where you're at in your relationship, just listen to the prayers you pray. If your prayers are me, 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 you know what your relationship's about? You. And at some point, in the beginning, that's okay to start off saying, God, I need your help. I need, I need this. But at some point, you have to grow up and mature and say, God, what do you want to do through me? How do I want to use this person to make a difference? And maybe like the disciples, we get in a place where we say, God, anything you want, I'll give it all. I'll go wherever you want. I'll do whatever you want. So are you moving or are you just spectating? 
Are you, are you allowing God to lead you because following Jesus always requires movement? Or are you just kind of trying to be comfortable? Maybe for us as a church, are we making a measurable difference? Or are we simply just conducting services? We just get together because the first ones get together. Or is there a purpose behind it? So this month, we're going to talk about that. Why do we exist as a church? Why was it so important for us to start a church in Santa Fe? Aren't there a lot of churches already here? There are. But there's something unique God is calling us to. And we celebrate those churches. We let, we're grateful for them. I pray for more to come to Santa Fe. In fact, while the pastors we get together on a monthly basis, one of our prayers is, God, help us to plant more churches in Santa Fe. Help us to start more. Help us to see more ministry happen. Help us to make a difference. And the question is for us as a church, are we making a measurable difference? Or are we simply just having services? Because the truth is, if we're just having services, I actually don't want to be the leader of that kind of church. Because it's not a movement. It's a place. I want to be known for a movement. I want to be able to know and say that we made a difference. So my challenge for us is this. Would you be the church? Start today. Would you be the church? Yes, it's not a building. It's living stones who say, God, you can use my life to build your church, your ecclesia, your gathering, your community of people. That wherever I go and I meet with others, we're the church. In school, in the office, at home, anywhere we go, we are the church. And we live, we live intentionally, allowing God to lead us. Because it's not about comfort. It's not just about blessings. God wants to bless. The blessings are always so we can bless others. Just so you know that. But it's about allowing God to lead us on this journey. Today, if you're here, one, maybe uh, when you have something hard, you know, I think sometimes I hear uh, um, different people live in America that, you know, it's so hard to be a Christian. There are some challenges with it. I think it's really hard, not in the sense that we're persecuted, like our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who are dying for their faith on a daily basis. It's a more subtle persecution. I get that. But there's also a more subtle pull towards comfort and a more subtle pull towards the American dream, which is not a bad dream. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But if that trumps what you're trying to do as a Jesus follower, you're missing the point. If, if notoriety and, and popularity and power and wealth and comfort is more important than saying, God, I surrender it all. You're an American first, not a Christian first. And the disciples would look at that and say, man, Jesus didn't die for that. He died for us to become more like him. People that throughout the centuries didn't give their life so that you can just have comfort. They gave your life so you can know Jesus and you can make him known to others. Do me a favor. Would you close your eyes and bow your head today as we end our service? I'm going to pray real fast and I'm going to give an invitation for those in this room or watch online if they want to make a decision day to follow this uh, follow Jesus our Messiah our teacher God we're so grateful for the people that you used throughout church history who gave their lives willingly who sacrificed all they had to help others know your truth know your kingdom God forgive us Lord God when the church missed it God, forgive us in church history where we got it wrong, when we made other things more important than what you're wanting to accomplish and do. God, I pray that you would not ever allow us to go down that path again, that we'd be the church that you really wanted to create, the ecclesia, the gathering, the group, the community of Jesus followers who get together to make a difference in our world. I pray specifically for our church, God, for the Grove, that we would be a community who loves others and is willing to give everything we have to accomplish that purpose. I pray for the other uh, churches in our set, in our city who lift you up, who proclaim you every Sunday and throughout the week, God, that you would also help them to be the church, God, in Santa Fe, that together we'd make a difference and impact in our city, God. We're grateful for churches like Christian Life, God. We're grateful for churches like Christ Church and Blaze and Hope and Mission Viejo and First Baptist. And we're so grateful for those, Father God, that desire to make you known throughout our city. Help us to join, Lord God, with the, the rich history of, our, of, of your people, God, who are living stones being built to accomplish something great. Forgive us where we miss it. Forgive us where we get off and we make it about things that it's not supposed to be about. Help us not ever go back to those things, but to be a living, breathing organization, movement, Lord God, that makes a difference. I think for each person that's here, each person that's watching, God, I pray that you would Stir in their hearts something, Lord God, to know you more, to give their life for, for the work that you want to do in our lives, God. We wouldn't would miss it, God. I thank you for today. This month, as we talk about the church, help us to have a, a heart, Lord God, to accomplish things you want to accomplish. God, put in our hearts, Lord God, to understand and see what our brothers and sisters around the world go through. 
on a regular basis because they want you to be proclaimed throughout the world. Help us to join in that, Lord God, and do a great thing with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Man, would you do me a favor? Would you keep your uh, eyes closed, your head bowed? If you're in this room or you're watching online, and as I've talked about this, maybe there's something in your heart that kind of maybe sparked. Maybe something inside of you said, you know what, I've, I haven't really been that kind of person. I haven't been that living stone. I haven't been that part of the church like he's talking about. I'm kind of like more of like what they used to do, just kind of fit in to be popular, just kind of go with the flow. But it really doesn't impact my life. There's not much movement in my life when it comes to following Jesus. It's stagnant. It's still. It's, it's not active. And you're here today, and that's you. You would want to say, I want to be following Jesus on a regular basis. I want to go all in. I want to trust him. I want to give my life to make a difference like those did. If you're in this room and you're not following Christ and you'd like to, if you're online and you're watching, I want to give you an opportunity to pray in a second. Maybe you're in this room and you would acknowledge and say, you know what? Man, I'm, I'm a once a day, once a week Jesus follower, Christian. Man, I'm all I'm good. As long as Sundays, that's it. But today I realize that's not what it means to be a Jesus follower. And today I want to go all in. I want to give my life. I want to offer everything I have to him. If that's either of you, you're in this room or online, would you do me a favor? Just lift up your hand right there. Let me know that you're here and you'd like to pray. I'm not going to call you to the front, but just right in your seat, lead you in a prayer. Awesome. Anybody else? A few hands. Anybody else? So good. If you're watching online, you want to pray this prayer with us? Those who raise your hand, pray this with me. And if you're Jesus following this room, would you pray with us so that those who are praying aren't praying alone? Just say this today. Say, to God, thank you so much for sending your son to give us an example of how to live. Thank you for letting him die on that cross to give us a way back to you. I believe Jesus is Lord. I believe he rose from the grave and that same power that raised him from the grave will now live in me. Come into my life. Forgive me for my sin, my past. Help me to walk in step with you. Help me to have movement in my faith. I put my trust in you today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Come on, church, let's celebrate those that prayed that. So good.